Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 15. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. The grass withers and the flower fades. All right. Thank you, Scott. A couple things. Kids, if you would like to go to Elevate, kindergarten, first and second grade, you can do that now. We'll be back there with the Bannon crew. Uh, Just a quick reminder, um, we're continuing in our series in Deuteronomy. Next week, we do have uh, Elevate and EGC. EGC is third through fifth grade. Uh, We're going to talk about some more sensitive issues uh, next week. So um, if your kids, if you're not ready to have those conversations yet uh, with kids, uh, they can come next week. I try to give it a little bit of time for them to get out the door, but they may have questions, and that's okay. And then also, what time is this afternoon? Two o'clock, okay. So uh, JD and then Susan back there, Susan, raise your hand. Uh, They do wonderful work with uh, Frontier. And then Belinda is Bunko, so bingo and Bunko. Don't get those confused. All right. Okay, Uh, we're continuing on this morning in our sermon series through Deuteronomy. And and, uh, throughout October, we're gonna be in the statutes, which is chapters uh, 12 through 26. We're not going to cover all of them. Uh, th- th- it's too vast for us to cover all of them. And some of them, I'll be honest, are just downright weird. Um, we'll, 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 I will bring some of those up next week. Uh, but um, this week, what we're going to look at uh, in Deuteronomy is uh, God's commands and his law in, in accordance with uh, justice and especially for those uh, for the poor. Uh, so what I'm going to ask you to do, because this is a fun, hot, top, top, hot topic, I'm going to ask you to be very intentional about holstering all of your hot button words that you're looking for, all right? If you can't do that, let me encourage you. I'm going to give you this encouragement. I love you, uh, and, and I'm, not, I'm not tremendously concerned. Um, but if you can't do that, uh, I, I have full confidence. I wrestle with my own sin- insecurities, my own fear, uh, mostly before the Lord. Uh, but if you can't holster your hot-button issues, uh, let me just assure you, Jesus will defend his bride. And so if anything that comes out of our mouths or our people um, is offensive to the bride of Christ, you're not taking that up with me. You are taking that up with him. And I'm happy to leave that in his hands. Uh, this is not a... Again, this is just an encouragement. I'm not worried about anybody here, uh, but Jesus gloriously has defended his bride throughout history, uh, and I'm happy with him to do that there. So with that, um, I'm going to start off here with, uh, we're going to get straight into the hot hot button issue. Um, In 1993, roughly 28% or nearly 19.4 million children in the United States were considered to be in poverty. This is uh, data that is calculated by the Census Bureau um, that takes both income and government aid into account. In 2019, so before the pandemic, which shifted uh, this even more, uh, 
the childhood poverty rate in America changed drastically. Now, keep in mind, we're talking about children, child poverty, all right? Children can't vote. They don't really participate in America's economic system. They're not pro or con. They're not coming out with words that we're fighting on Twitter. These are kids. The childhood poverty rate in America drastically changed. Now, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask for internal dialogue here. If you want to lean over and whisper to your neighbor, that's totally fine. But internal dialogue, don't shout anything out. Um, uh, What do you think? Did the numbers go up or down? All right. Um, the pandemic affected this even more, but the number in 2019 went from 19.4 million children to 8.4. A reduction of 59 percent. 11 million fewer children. And, the, and all reports would suggest that the drop was equal across all racial lines and in every state. Uh, black, Latino, uh, white, and Asian all went down at equal rates. Now, Latino and Asian are still, or Latino and black are still three times more likely to be in poverty. But the numbers dropped by 59 percent. A, and then in the pandemic actually dropped even more. Let me see if I can take a guess at some internal dialogue that might be going on right now. Okay, okay. But uh, how? How? I I'll be honest with you. As a follower of Jesus, um, Childhood poverty being affected by that much ought to immediately be a celebration. How many of you have read this on the news? Exactly. How many of you have seen the political talking heads going, this was, our, this was our doing? We're winning the battle against poverty. And childhood poverty affects adult poverty. 59%. This is historic. This is not like any other time in history since childhood poverty has been, has been uh, even, even calculated. Uh, the, uh, here's the names. Renee Ryberg and Dana Thompson. They, uh, it's a bipartisan research study called Child Trends. If you want the link, uh, email me. Just for the link. I don't need commentary. All right? I think, this, I think this is good news. And I still wonder if you're, are you waiting for the shoe to drop? Everybody waiting for like, well, let's see if it's good news. Who gets to take credit? Which party? What policy? What are we talking about here? Egad, that ought to be a conviction. It really ought to be a conviction. If we are not, and I'm not saying you're doing this. But if we can't celebrate that without going, okay, but which party gets to claim credit for that? Now, let me give you some good news. Regardless, regardless of which side of the political aisle you sit on, your party was involved. Does that make you feel better? In 1996, a Democratic president with the aid of a Republican Congress passed a bill that would completely transform welfare and aid. And it was a move that the progressives said wouldn't work. It would only cause greater poverty. poverty. And the conservatives said it wasn't enough. And the effects have been astounding. Astounding. Jason DiParlio, who's a reporter for the New York Times, said this. A patchwork of programs shaped by a century of political conflict and compromise, the safety net bears the imprint of both parties and commands the satisfaction of neither. Most Republicans wanted less spending, more local control, and more rules requiring beneficiaries to work. Most Democrats wanted higher benefits for more people as seen in their unsuccessful push this year for permanent, to permanently turn the child tax, uh, tax credit uh, and a worker subsidy into a broader income guarantee. There was a combination of reward for parents, especially single parents, to work, 
along with the government safety, government safety net expansion, which became more stringent and simultaneously more generous and has led to an outcome that nobody saw coming. And ironically, nobody wants to claim. Even though it's actually working in unprecedented measures. Now, I will not sing the praises of either political party at all, and we're going to deal with some of the questions this may bring up and leave you with a lot more. But this idea of both personal responsibility and communal backup and safety, we take for granted. And maybe we should ask, where on earth did this concept come from? Who came up with this? This hasn't always been. Who came up with it? Well, it might be hard to imagine that the world has not always been like this. And if we're honest, uh, it's hard to admit that the world doesn't always necessarily work like this. And here again, it's funny because neither side wants to take the blame or the credit on this one because it might be giving too much to the other side. Our goal is just to hurt the other side. In the ancient world, there was no such thing as civil or social safety nets. There just wasn't. It wasn't a thing. And you can say, well, nobody took, nobody took advantage of an ancient system. That's right, because there was no ancient system. It wasn't there. Um, some of it, there, wasn't, there just wasn't as much excess to pass around. Households were much larger, and, and there would be a, a gathering of the household um, but if somebody was poor, oftentimes that was attributed to their god or divine placement. Uh, in most other ancient pagan cosmologies, your placement in life was what God assigned to you. you. There were different values. The imago Dei, the image of God, that all humans are created equal, is distinctly from Genesis. It is not from any other ancient cosmology or belief. And so oftentimes... Uh, Poverty or disaster or famine or whatever might happen was simply the fault of your God or God's and was not my problem. Now we hear these things, and I think what we should do is debate how to care for the poor. I hope, at least, we go, well, how should we care for the poor? But honestly, it feels like the majority of our time is spent debating how the other side is wrong in their approach in caring for the poor and how we are better and more righteous and more holy, uh, whichever side we're on, and um, the debate, the poor become a prop and, and they, we hold them up as to how self-righteous we are. The God that reveals himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then here to Moses and the people of Israel is... This is a radical, radical concept that God is laying out here. And I don't think we understand how radical this is. So here's our outline for this morning. Um, I'm going to give you some stories throughout history. My hope is you write a couple of them down and then go look them up and explore them even more. Uh, when we, the first, we're going to be examining the law that God gave Moses, the church that it would produce, and then at the end, just we're going to get straight to the point. Um, examining the law, the church it would produce, and then straight to the point. Uh, so first we're going to look at examining the law. And I'm just going to go through Proverbs and list some of the laws. Uh, and there are some more that we're going to explore in a couple weeks of all that the law that we take for granted in every day of our lives, all that this law starts to name and put into practice and what it protects people from. It's pretty remarkable. Um, so I'm going to hit kind of quick some of these. Chapter 14, and some of these you're going you're to have to take my word for it, uh, unless, and I would encourage you, go back and read um, and, and explore and ask questions about, about all the more. Uh, so the first thing, chapter 14, we have the concept of the tithe, which literally, literally means 10%. Um, here is something to keep in mind. This is, we see this specifically in the promised land, but basically God says, the promised land is mine. I own this land. You are, you are renting it from me. Leasing it at best, okay? 10% is the payment. 
That 10% involves the offerings to God, but also God uses the offerings and the tithes to, to accomplish something for the sake of the people. Um, and what we see, the concept that we see that we will take in the New Testament is that God owns everything, so be careful when we say this money is mine. Okay? Nobody's amening any of this. Um, this, is, this is the concept of the tithe. Uh, to give a tenth. Deuteronomy 14, I think 23. Gosh. All right. We're, I'm just leaving these on. I can't see you when I do that. I can see this, though. Uh, the tithe of your grain, your wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And then he makes this offering. If it's too much, because remember, they're supposed to go to a designed place to bring their offerings. And if it's too much to carry all of your wine and all of your food and all of your flock and all of that stuff, if it's too much to carry that, go sell it, turn it into money, then take the money to the place, to the temple, where you are to, um, uh, to the, the place that God has appointed to be worshipped, and then go to the, the temple and purchase whatever you want. Grain, meat, Strong drink, bring the tithe into the temple, and feast. Celebrate. And when you feast, the meal is to be extended to the Levites, the priests. So that means you've got to invite me. Uh, and uh, Deuteronomy 14.29, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Essentially, the tithe operated as a means of corporately feeding those in need or those who did not have land from which they could bring an offering. Sometimes, if you didn't have land, you were tied to someone else's land, either through servitude or debt. Uh, you, would, you could borrow from someone, uh, and then you would have to work it off by working their land. God protects his people then in the next chapter, 15, from long-term debts, by giving them the Sabbath year. Every Sabbath year, debts are to be wiped clean and forgiven. And this is a regular rhythm. Now, I'm going to assume if you abused that, people would stop giving you, would stop lending you money. But the goal was to prevent long-term crippling uh, and generational debt. God sends over and over again huge warnings about the temptation of wealth. And in the ancient world, in the ancient world, wealth was used uh, really to, to usurp justice. I know, I know, those ancient people. <laughs> wealth was used to usurp justice. You could bribe gods, you could bribe judges, and you could get out of trouble simply by using money. And God is constantly saying, have you, have you ever read in the Old Testament and where it talks about how much God hates bribes? Have you seen this? It's everywhere. God despises bribes because bribes usurp justice. God is saying, I own everything. Who do you think you are that you could pay me off? Not only that, but I created everything, so you're trying to bribe me with my own stuff. And also, God is the one who, this, again, this is unique in the ancient world of this idea of one God creating everyone. Egyptians had an idea of the Imago Dei. It was uh, the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh bore the image of God. Heirs of the Pharaoh, the couple generations below him, also bore the image of God. Everyone else was created lesser. That was, that was the ancient cosmology, the views in, in most of them. It, it, this Hebrew scripture alone has this idea of one God created the Hebrews, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians. Like one God created all people. That was very unique. And what he's saying here is all people bear my image. Um, and you cannot buy... God off. It's a direct slap in the face to his authority. Chapter 16, this is, this is uh, reinforced. The judges that are appointed are to consider the law equally applied and not favor the rich over the poor. 
And they stand heavily accountable if they accept bribes or pervert justice or favor the rich. Um, some of you may remember the name Ethan Couch. Anybody remember that name? You may not remember the name, but you may remember uh, the law case. June 2013, at the age of 16, he drove a pickup carrying seven people in the back of it into a group of people working on a car on the side of the road. He was drunk. They found traces of Valium in his system at 16, flying down a country road in his dad's F-350. He killed the four people that were working on the car on the side of the road, flung everyone else out of the back of the pickup, leaving one of his friends uh, that was in the back of the trick, uh, pickup completely paralyzed. Couch's family was very wealthy, and apparent, his parents apparently never disciplined him for any of the actions, and so his high-priced defense team used the now famous term, anybody remember? Affluenza. That he was guilty of being affluent. Never having to face consequences because his money got him out of it. The sentence that young Ethan Couch had to serve for killing four people uh, was to go to substance abuse treatment. Now, he did end up serving two years uh, in jail for violating his substance abuse treatment when a video of him drinking um, was found on the internet and went viral. So he did serve two years. And when that video went out, his mom actually took him to Puerto Vallarta and they hung out in Puerto Vallarta and the way that they caught him was his mom ordered a pizza and they found out where the condo was that they were staying in. Interesting story. Depending on zip codes, even in our current day, drug use or drug abuse either makes you a thug and a criminal or a misunderstood teen with wasted potential. God commands judges apply the laws in ways that are helpful and equal for both rich and poor. Chapter 17, God gives a list of warnings about kings that his, uh, kings that his people will... Uh, his people are going to eventually want kings. God gives warning here. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the other nations that are around me, even though God said, don't try to be like the other nations, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. All right, everybody got that? Everybody got the warnings that are down for the king? Fast forward to Second Chronicles. At the end of chapter 1 into 2, David prays this beautiful prayer over Solomon. Solomon assumes the throne. Uh, the son of the great David. And this is what we read in Chronicles, the end of Chronicles chapter, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 1. Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king of Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the, of the Shephelah. And uh, maybe. And Solomon, uh, Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q, and, and the king's traders would buy them from Q at a price, uh, for a price. Then he goes on to list the price. Uh, and then in chapter 2, Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. And he assigned 70,000 men to bear the burdens. In other words, he enslaved 70,000 of his own men and 80,000 to quarry in the hill country. 3,600 to oversee them. And you may have read once or twice how many wives Solomon, how many wives and concubines Solomon had. This is a danger sign. Money has always been a powerful counterfeit God. Goodness, I'm just going to, all right, sorry. Chapter 23. Uh, people are given the, the, the call that they can charge interest to outsiders but they are not to charge interest for brothers. 
so that they may be blessed entering into the new land. Chapter 24, this is just in these sets of random laws. 24, 10 through 13, when collecting a debt from someone in poverty, essentially what he says is to be more concerned with their well-being. So if their debt is going to cost them as much as their house and they have the ability to pay it off, do not take their house from them. Allow them to sleep and pay it off themselves, which builds dignity for them and for you in the favor of the Lord. Do not put him further in trouble. Verses 14 to 15 talks about employers paying their workers in a timely manner and a good wage, especially when they need it. And this applies both to uh, Israelite workers and to sojourners, that employers are to treat them fairly and good for their work. And then 19 through 25 uh, talks about when they are harvesting. Beat the olive trees once, collect your harvest, leave what is left for the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner. Don't strip the vineyards down to the last grape. Leave the leftovers. That they would come, and this is called gleaning, leaving the outside. If you've uh, uh, heard that in the story of Naomi and Ruth. And the motive that God gives for these is to remember you were once slaves in Egypt, so don't do to other people what was done to you. You should know this. And in doing so, they are bearing the image of God who shows mercy and compassion, the God who resists the proud but shows grace to the humble, the God who created all people in his image, the God who will promise that his kingdom will be inherited by those who have a poverty of spirit. Now, we've talked about this before. The whole point of the law in Deuteronomy is not simply to go down a checklist of rules and check them off and saying, this is what makes me righteous. These are designed to bear an image that this would become a people that look like the God that they serve. And this would be a God, uh, again, that would not chase after false gods of power and wealth, but trust their God enough as the creator of all people to see and have mercy on the poor, the outcast, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. So the passage that we read right off the beginning, uh, right off the bat here that Scott read, I think it holds the key to the people that we are to become. This is, I believe, the central truth here of all of this. Do not harden your heart. The greatest enemy, the greatest enemy in the life of faith and trust of God is a hardened heart. I'm going to fast forward here real quick, brief, brief overview. Israel would gain power and wealth and would eventually harden their hearts. And the condemnation that comes against Israel over and over and over again has to do with their care for the poor. Throughout the Old Testament, you will see over and over again, God, the, the writers of the Old Testament contrasting, juxtaposing the righteous and the wicked. And almost without fail, the wicked are the ones who hoard and take up their money, and the righteous are the ones who give generously. Isaiah would bring a charge against Israel. What is the fast that the Lord seeks? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Eventually, Israel would fall under judgment and be removed from the land briefly, in context, taken into exile. And when they were restored from exile, the words of the prophets went from harsh warnings to soft comfort. And then from Israel would come Jesus, the mighty king the Messiah, who would come not in any way like anyone expected. He was not wealthy. He was not powerful. He came humble, homeless. He took the form of a servant. And then through his life and then his death, burial, and resurrection, the laws 
given to Israel would be ignited in this New Testament church made up of both Jews and Gentiles who had, who had received this radical grace and love from Jesus. And the New Testament church would not go out to win the world for Jesus, the early church. They would go out to bear faithful witness to the resurrection in the ways that they acted and behaved and communed with one another and loved one another. Jesus, in fact, wins the world for himself. And this New Testament church, they would feed the poor, they would care for widows and orphans, they would sit at tables with people of different ethnicity and different economic backgrounds from every tribe and tongue. And they opened up this command to care for the poor, not just for brothers of Israel, but for the entire world. And so this is the church that this law would eventually produce. Um, now, Paul is going to address issues in the New Testament church. There were false t teachings. There were always issues throughout the New Testament church. Um, uh, but that said, uh, when, as the church took root, this is what followers of Jesus were known for. Acts 2 paints this picture immediately right off the bat. They were together. They were communing with one another, eating food together. Uh, that um, They would study the, the apostles' teachings, and God would add to their number day by day those who were being saved, and they gave so that none had need. Tim Keller, I know this quote isn't necessarily original with him, but I couldn't find who it was original with, so the point is made. This is his quote. The early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. The Christians that came along gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. 300 years in, we get to Constantine, a mixed bag, for sure. Christianity has given cultural power, which does not go well for the church throughout history. But the testimony of the church was actually pretty remarkable. Constantine saw fit, this was part of his appeal, he gave the church and clergy tax exemption to care for the poor. And really, this is the first time that we see a general social concern, civil concern, of care for the poor and the sick and the outsider, outside of ancient Israel. This was his quote, the wealthy must be there to support the obligations of the secular world, the state. So he's still careful how he set this up. While the poor are maintained by the wealth of the churches. Agree or disagree with, with how that comes out, what Constantine observed in these New Testament churches was that they were caring for the poor and the outsider and the widow and the orphan. Um, the testimonies of history are actually overwhelming. I'm going to give you a few, all right? Um, because I think they're important. I, uh, we got a chance to tour the Holocaust Museum uh, this week that's going to be opening in November uh, in St. Louis at the, uh, the Jewish Federation building, and I am going to... In um, we're hoping to be able, Scott, go out. We're hoping to be able to um, do a church, a private church tour at some point. Um, but I was convicted of that, of how much we neglect church history and how much we need to t teach church history, the good and the bad. Um, here's a couple stories. Several events took place shortly after Constantine died. Uh, Julian the Apostate, uh, it's kind of a bummer nickname, um, Constantine's kid-ish, uh, study ancient world for that, uh, but he wanted to return Rome to its rightful pagan worship, and he called the Christians atheists uh, because they did not worship the Roman gods. He, we have letter upon letter of him complaining and being frustrated at the amount of charity that Christians did, and eventually he wrote to his own pagan priests, and he said, why aren't we doing this and caring for widows and orphans? And the pagan priest would write back to him and said, because that's not what we do. That's what Christians do. This is a different religion. And so Julian, the apostate, actually implemented a whole lot of charity within the Roman pagan religion because he was frustrated at what the Christians were doing. 
After Julian, again, lots of complex good and bad. In the West, Christianity was beginning to see themselves as the majority, which would lead to the proclamation of Jesus via coercion, cultural assimilation, or just straight-up threats. Uh, not all, certainly not all. Um, in the East, however, the champions of helping us to understand the Trinity, the Cappadocian fathers, were also extremely concerned with the care for the poor. Gregory of Nyssa would write extensively on the call of every follower of Jesus to care for the poor as the greatest commandment, showing compassion and care for our fellow man. His friend, Basil of Caesarea, created the first hospital that would care for anybody. Roman soldiers had hospitals. They had health care. The rich had health care. Or you could go to a Roman temple and, and, and have priests pray over you and religious health care and input for a healthy donation. But Basil created this complex called the House for the Poor. It had departments. One was for the poor. One was for homeless and strangers. They had a house for orphans. Christianity invented children, not just future laborers. But they took them in and cared for orphans that had been left behind, uh, especially those who were abandoned. Uh, they had a completely separate section for lepers. Uh, and they had a house for the aged and a hospital that cared for the sick in general. In the West, other, ho other hospitals began taking shape eventually uh, by followers of Jesus. There's a fascinating story of Fabiola. I don't know if that's how to pronounce her name. She was a wealthy Roman aristocrat, aristocrat, aristocrat. Um, now all I can think of is midnight and the kitties are sleeping. All right. Uh, she uh, had an incredibly abusive husband, which the emperor granted her uh, a divorce of her abusive husband. But she was in, very wealthy, and wealthy women in the Roman Empire did not associate with really anybody else. Somewhere along the line, Fabiola becomes a follower of Jesus and embraces Christianity and got convicted about her wealth. She sold all of her jewelry, all of her clothes. She ended up dressing in servants' clothing, befriended Jerome of Bethlehem, uh, who was a tremendous ancient Christian scholar. She ended up selling all of her property and started what Jerome called an infirmary. And Jerome and his letters are how we know about her existence. This is what he writes about her. She gathered into this infirmary, sufferers from the streets, giving a nurse's care to poor bodies, worn with sickness and hunger, maimed noses, lost eyes, scorched feet, leprous arms, swollen bellies. How often she carried her own on her own shoulders poor, filthy wretches tortured by epilepsy. How often did she wash away the purulent matter from wounds which others would not even endure to look at? She gave food with her own hand, and even when a man was but a breathing corpse, she would moisten his lips with drops of water. We take public health care for granted. Maybe, amen. Can you imagine the joy and delight that somebody like Fabiola would think if we said, yeah, we have, to, we have to find the hospital in our network. There are so many things in our day that we take for granted that come from people like Fabiola and Basil and bishops and monks and priests that simply followed Jesus to care for the poor. The Middle Ages, caring for the poor and charity became so mainstream that it would find itself part of civil law. In 1552, as an act of Edward VI, someone in poverty could go to a local bishop and complain about a miser, somebody that had money that would not give it generously. And a, public, and a bishop could press charges against the wealthy for hoarding their money. 1572, during Elizabeth's reign, justices of the peace were given charge to count uh, how many destitute lived in each parish and then how much each local citizen would be required to pay to look after those in need. Not long after that, early 1600s, the English tradition would 
begin, which would influence US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand to redirect taxes to care for the poor of society. Now, we can discuss the strategy of this for sure. But for fiscal conservatives who view this as theft, I want to tell you, you have the church to blame. Christian lawyers and bishops would tell you that hoarding wealth is theft. Now, for secular progressives who say, of course we care for the poor and the outsider and the weak. That's just common human decency. No, it is not. You must credit the church. It did not exist. Now, I'm not here to debate the merits of civil practices of caring for the poor. Only to help us see that caring for the poor in general, as a people and as a broader culture, comes directly from God who revealed himself to his people in Deuteronomy and commanded them that every human being is worthy of dignity and respect and care, which then flowed to a church who turned that upside down by the resurrection and compelling love of Jesus to take this care to every tribe and tongue, a church that truly and genuinely seemed to believe that they had been so greatly loved by God that their earthly possessions became disposable to give away even joyfully. A church that believed wholeheartedly that what they did for the impoverished and the widow and the orphan and the outsider and the destitute and the hungry and thirsty, they actually did for Jesus himself. All right, we're going long, I'm sorry. I think this requires time, almost done. In the ancient times, again, there was no system to milk. So that didn't exist. Middle Ages, the church would try to use discernment. Of course, they would have people that would try to abuse the system. Every system has people that are gonna try to abuse the system, including the grace and mercy of Jesus, okay? They tried to use discernment often, but that said, most that we have, most of the laws would rather be taken advantage of than be stringent, than be stingy. They would err on the side of uh, generosity. The church throughout history has plenty of abuses of power, plenty of abuses of power. Um, and simultaneously, as we're telling those stories, we have to tell these. The church created, because of Jesus, because of God's revelation, created the concepts of social care and awareness of the poor. The church started hospitals, orphanages, was central in making strong education available for everyone. We're in a day and age where caring for the poor is a hot-button issue. Um, again, I don't know that it's necessarily because people want to care for the poor, uh, but, but They've become a prop in, in who's, who's better. Um, I struggled this morning with bringing this to an application point other than don't harden your heart uh, because I, I have a feeling everybody's going to have a caveat. Everybody's got a quid pro quo. Everybody's got a yeah, but. What about? Oh, well, but, uh, come on. Um, here's our call love and advocate for and be generous to the poor, to the outsider, to the marginalized, to the hurting, to the lonely, the wounded, the vulnerable. If you're here and that is you or you have felt that, whether that's financially or emotionally or spiritually, God sees you and loves you and then calls and compels his people. If you have been seen and loved by God, go and do likewise. See humans as image bearers of God and be careful about your cynicism or your indifference or our blanket statements. Talk to people. Buy a meal. Give money. Don't get all stingy about where they might spend it. 
it's okay. I'm willing to bet most of you spend money on things you don't absolutely need. I do. Give clothing, coats, gloves, cash without a lecture. Don't hold the cash right here and say, do you know Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior? Don't do that. Give cash and say, I'm compelled to give this because Jesus loved me. Go. Spend it. I mean, you don't have to even say that. You can talk. When you have time and capacity, you can learn more of their story. Chronic homelessness is a thing. Mental illness is a problem. Become familiar with local resources. Serve at a food bank. Spend time at Connections for Success, helping people get out of, who are just getting out of incarceration, transitioning back. Training for jobs and all that stuff. Come serve at Frontier. I don't think we need like 100 people this afternoon. But like go visit people that are near the end of their life and may not have any family around anywhere. The church is still doing some amazing things despite the talking heads. The church is doing some amazing things. Food pantry, food pantry care services, rehabilitation stuff, homeless shelters, crisis pregnancy centers. The church is doing amazing stuff working with immigrants that are, being, that are coming from all over the world. In fact, there are civil services that are seeking the help of the church. We still have a calling. Don't get distracted by the political war of words and the name calling and the hot words that we know if this person says this, they're obviously this. And if this, it's all self righteousness of the talking heads that simply want attention. Any attention you will give. Don't do it just to post on social media. Don't hashtag an image bearer of God. There's something about, there's something even in our own personal life. There's a temptation about befriending people or getting close with people that can help move you up the ladder, right? That have something to offer you, that, can, uh, that, that you can benefit from them, that can network you with other things, that can hook you up in the right path or, or whatever, about kissing up to the powerful and the wealthy and all of those things. And we're tempted to give our time and our attention to impress those people. And a lot of times we're willing to give up something of ourselves to get in with those people. Or maybe even to become those people. And maybe that's not too unlike the nation of Israel when God said over and over and over again, be careful, be careful that you trade this in for lesser gods that seem to have all the answers. Something that I've been wrestling with, it's really convicting and I have a long, long, long way to go. Can, I, can we start to see the people that are a big deal in God's economy? If the worst thing that the law warns about is a hardened heart, if we experience the grace and beauty and love and forgiveness and mercy and compassion of Jesus, and his kingdom begins to be built in us, then we're actually told that to see the hurting and the downtrodden and the broken is to actually see Jesus himself. That that actually should soften our hearts. The poor are not a problem to be solved, but a people that bear the image of God to love. Matthew 25, at the end of all time, this is the image that Jesus paints here. This is Jesus himself talking. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer Jesus saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you or 
visit you when you were sick or in prison? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. I had said that every week we're going to close meditating on Psalm 1 through October. Um, so that's going to be our prayer. Word. Not just in the rules that God gives, but God revealing himself. This is his character. This is what, the way he designed the world to be, the way we designed us. Finding, God, finding joy in the God who revealed himself. Not as restrictions or rules or the cosmic killjoy, but as actually the way to be fully alive. So let's close in prayer, meditating on Psalm 1. Um, I don't know, your practice this week is don't be hardened of heart. <laughs> Go and do. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, his joy, is in the law of the Lord, the God who made himself known. And on that, he meditates day and night. This person dwells in deep, rich soil. It's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And the things that he does, because his mind is set on the Lord, whatever he does prospers. The wicked who chase after simply today are like chaff that the wind blows away. And they won't be able to stand in the judgment, the declaration of acceptance. They will not be able to stand in the Lord's presence for that. And they won't be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God, soften our hearts. Distractions affiliations, strategies. Those can, the, the strategies can be helpful, but they make for lousy gods. And we often confuse those. Soften our hearts. Help us to see people, to love them in the way that you have loved us, to see that this is actually, this is actually a way that you reveal yourself and continue to soften our hearts. We serve people that have nothing to offer us just as you served and loved us who have nothing to offer you. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.